important for me to say as a, as a pastor as well. And the first thing I just want to say is not so much an announcement, but just to thank you for all those that came out for the work day. We had a great work day yesterday. People worked hard. To my knowledge, nobody got hurt, which is a little unusual, but we'll take it. Um, and, and and it was, a, you know, the, the, wor- the, the turnout was just a tremendous blessing. So thank you, and thank you, Rank family, for your leadership in that. We know it's a lot of work. Um, along with that praise is also an opportunity, and I'll just might as well say it now while I'm talking about Workday, is um, the ranks are, are stepping aside from leading our church workdays because of other responsibilities. So Workday Coordinator is wide open for all of you who have been waiting in line to serve in that capacity. Take it before the Lord. It's, we have two, two a year. And um, if you came out, if you have ever been to one, you see that the busy bees, they kind of, we have a general idea what needs to be done. So it's, it's not that labor intensive, but it is the planning and coordinating uh, ahead of time does take some work. So please pray about your um, possibility of serving in that area. We do want to be good stewards of our, our grounds here. Also, um, just a reminder that on the 21st is our share service. I have two volunteers that would like to share, so there's plenty of room for more. Let me know if you'd like to share during that time for our Thanksgiving service. And then, um, lastly, just a reminder that we do have a little handicap section out here where you can park closer uh, to the church building, not have to work, walk so far. I know that the, you know we have gravel out there, and it's not perfectly smooth like like uh, blacktop might be. So we do have this handicap area. You can park closer, and then we have a ramp for our sidewalk and come right on in this door. So just a reminder, please use that if you'd like to. So as you know, this is our communion Sunday, and we do things. We, we order our service just a little different. And the main reason, well, there's two reasons for it. One is simply variety. It's just a to um, prevent us from falling into some kind of worship rut where it becomes perfunctory. You know, we're just going through the motions. So hopefully on Sundays, by changing it up a little bit, it keeps us on our spiritual toes a little more. But also because it gives us an opportunity uh, to worship the Lord in a different order in this sense. We, We get to worship Him through the Word and then respond to what God has done in our hearts or maybe what He's speaking to us for our time or during our time of praise. And then after we have an opportunity to corporately praise God, then we come and share the Lord's Supper together as a family. And then also, following the service, enjoy a fellowship meal together. So it's kind of a a family, church family Sunday, if you will. And we do that on purpose and intentionally. I've been using the Psalms for our Communion Sunday content. And it's entitled, just as a refresher, God Tunes. And I know it's a play on words. Maybe you have the app iTunes, where you can enjoy the music of your liking. But God Tunes, the Psalms really are God's songs. They are inspired. These words and these Psalms that we've been studying are inspired by God. And the Psalms are a tremendous book and a very popular Bible book, if not the most popular, because 
that you can be, they're, they're written by believers who just want to love God, but they're aware of their sin. They're aware of the struggles. There's a lot of prayers or singing about being delivered from enemies, being delivered from our own sin. But it's the longing of a heart. So you can jump into a psalm and, and just hear the longing of a person's heart to want to love God and draw near to God. And so it's really a great place to dive in, a great place to understand the nuts and bolts of what it's like to live for God. It's not sugar-coated. You know, when you read these psalms, there are tough situations that God calls us to go through as His children. And so there's whining, there's complaining, there's uh, imprecatory prayers where you're praying that God will get your enemies, and there's just a, a little bit of everything in here. But God is good, and I trust that He's going to use this morning's psalm to minister to all of us and that we would have a greater desire to minister to Him. So I'm going to read it. It's 13 verses, Psalm 65. Praise is due you, O God, in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. By awesome deeds, you answer us with righteousness. O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and the farthest seas, the one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. So by way of introduction, this is a psalm of David. And just a quick, I have three points, but a, a quick reading reveals kind of two themes. One is how, how worshipers can get to God when they're filled with sin or iniquity. What Something happens that has to happen to that iniquity. It has to be removed. And so the first part has to do with dealing God dealing with our sins so that we can be happy, joyful, forgiven, clean worshipers. And then the majority of the song has to do with nature. He, he is just pouring out a tremendous heart of gratitude. He is observing what God does in the world and what he has done for him. And he's filled with thankfulness. And it's very poetic. 
I mean, he's just gushing. The, the rivers are filled with water because of God's goodness, God's beauty, God's plan, God's design. And, and you picture the, the waves of grain that we, we sing about here in our country, the waves of grain, the abundance, and how they move, they, they move in unison. And yet those waves of grain mean food. It means bread on the table. And so he just is painting a beautiful picture of the gift of creation that we get to enjoy every day. And it's personal. It's a personal thing. When, when you enjoy a view, is this on? Okay. When you enjoy a view of God and it blesses your heart, thank God for it. I know that um, if you have a garden, what's better than the produce of the ground that you grew with your own sweat and tears, and then you get that first fruit or the first produce of it and you sink your teeth into it? These are, these are things that we enjoy in God's creation. You know, we are in a fallen world, and the Scripture also tells us that this same beautiful gift of God, because it's fallen, it groans. Things aren't right. And even creation the, the, the animate things, the organic things have the, some kind of metaphorical sense that things are not as they ought to be, that, as, create, as they were created to be. So in this fallen world, you get, you get both. You get the worst and the best. And the psalmist is choosing, for the most part, to emphasize the goodness of God's common grace. Not that we deserve it. But God just gives it. And so, you, you know, you could be looking at the same magazine or the same paper. And on this page, you have this terrible story of tragedy or death or destruction or, or, or plotted evil. And, and you, just, you just shake your head and it's so sad and, and dark. And then on the other page of the same paper, you might have this beautiful story of goodness or... Or, or an invention of something that's saving lives. Or people that are just enjoying the world. And so you, you can have on any given day the same thing of people plotting evil. But because of God's grace, you have people plotting good. How can I bring good to people? How can I save lives as opposed to taking lives? So you, we live in a world with both. But we want to be mindful to thank God, to thank the Creator for His beauty, for His design that we get to enjoy every day. You know, just, just a field of corn is a big deal that we don't want to take for granted. The C.S. Lewis, of all people, actually has something to say about this psalm. Uh, he's big on writing literature, wonderful works, and he can phrase things in, a, in just a certain way. But he points out that the ancients, um, the Jews, Gentiles, but the ancients, they appreciated nature in a different way, um, probably in a grander way, because they were more immersed in it and more dependent upon it. They depended upon their gardens, the, the rows of corn. They depended upon the drops of rain and sunny days for their sustenance. 
So they had that relationship with it, but also just the enjoyment of it. You know, nature in this fallen world, nature still serves a tremendous uh, purpose in people's lives. You, you hear today people feeling one with nature. They want to go out to nature, escape with nature. So people don't always understand the purpose of it and don't always glorify God. But by God's common grace, many people are enjoying the benefits of the beauty and the design of nature. So the ancients, especially during the time of writing these psalms, they were more integrated um, and, and interacted with things, just more closer to it. Now, if you've kept up with these things, you will know as far as demographics or sociology goes that more and more people today are moving into cities. Now, COVID was a little bit of an exception because when you can work from home, people started thinking, wait a minute, I don't have to drive through rush hour and all this stuff. I can work from my own house. I think I'm going to move out of the city a little bit and still have the benefits of working there remotely. <clears throat> but by and large, there's, there's that demographic that's taking place in our world. All over the world, more and more people are moving from rural areas to urban centers. So our cities are getting bigger and bigger. So what that kind of means on a practical uh, aspect is that <clears throat> less people are immersed in nature or the country or wide open spaces. Uh, fewer people see waves of grain, cornfields, milo, barley, wheat, cotton, whatever is grown uh, in, in your area. So what's happening is that the country uh, farms, the country, the mountains are more of a place to escape to. They're, they represent a place of peace, tranquility. So you escape the busyness of the city so that you can enjoy the peacefulness and the beauty and the grandeur of the country. When these psalms were written, it wasn't quite like that. You did both. You depended on the produce to put food on the table. You were probably a part of the, the farm, a farm worker or a farmhand so that you could provide for yourself or your family. And it wasn't taking a break for, from living. That was your living. So C.S. Lewis says specifically about this psalm, he says, and the psalmists give us far more sensuously and delightedly than anything I have seen in Greek, of course he, he reads the ancients and mythology, is the very feel of weather. Weather seen with a real countryman's eyes. Enjoyed almost as a vegetable might be supposed to enjoy it. Well, that's pretty clever. So the psalmists are looking at nature and creation appreciating every drop of rain, every, every blade of grass, almost as if you're the vegetable that needs those things to thrive and to grow. This psalm was probably sung randomly, but more than likely it was sung specifically as a harvest hymn. And it would be, it was because, as you can see, it has to do with celebrating the harvest of Israel. And so it was very likely sung during the Feast of Booze, which was a big celebration of bringing in 
the sheaves or bringing in the harvest that God had provided. And so the worshipers, as they approached the temple to worship the Lord during the Feast of uh, Booths, um, they would sing this song on their way. They would sing it while they were there, celebrating the goodness of God. And this was a big feast. This was about eight days from Sabbath to Sabbath. So I would imagine the greater the harvest, the greater the celebration. You know, most cultures, I think probably all cultures, have some kind of way to celebrate the harvest. We, we just know that we're dependent on the weather, right? So I know if you live in the city, you think that you just go to the grocery store and you get a can or a jar or a box. But to get that can or jar or box, it had to rain somewhere, the sun had to shine somewhere, and somebody had to plant these things. And so every culture has this idea. And we're, we, we just celebrate our fall festival. But one of the uh, hymns that our culture has for as a harvest hymn or a harvest song is, Come, you thankful people, come. I don't know this, but maybe some of you have heard it. And it's the old hymn writers, they love to write. So you have like not just one stanza or two. Or three, but man, they just could go on. They almost had to choose one to stop, and it's all good stuff. But I'm only going to read two. I come, oh, come, you thankful people, come. Raise the song of harvest home. Fruit and crops are gathered in now before the storms begin. God, our maker, will provide for our needs to be supplied. Come with all his people, come. Raise the song of harvest home. So that's the mindset that we're approaching this psalm with. So with that said, let's look at our text. And this psalm actually kind of naturally breaks itself up into three stanzas. So first, verses 1 through 4, I've entitled The God of Grace. Here's how he begins. Praise is due you, O God, in Zion. And to you shall vows be performed, O you who hear prayer. To you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. And blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. Now, I really, I could just stop on the first half of verse 1. And spend our time there because this is something that I think we often lose sight of even as believers. And that is the acknowledgement that praise is due God. It's a pleasant obligation. But it's something that he just is forever deserving of and worthy of. And in our self-centered culture, we often lose sight of why we even offer our praise and thanks to God. So the worship praise is due him, the psalmist says. He deserves it. And so we're going to give it to him. And the idea is, O God in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. So It's due you, and what we're going to do is we're going to give you the praise that's due. We're going to come with our thanksgiving, and we're going to make our vows. We're going to do this in the temple. 
So it's almost as if on their way they're singing praises, do you? And when we get there, we, we've already prepared the table of praise. In a sense, it's like a, a feast where God will harvest the praises of the people because it's due him. So praises do you. We have every intent to give you the praise that is due you. So we gather corporately to do that so that you can enjoy it. You can enjoy it as we journey there, and you can enjoy our praise that's due you when we arrive. I can't think of a better way to even arrive to our praise times and our times of worship than with this mindset, why am I doing this? Why am I? I mean, because one of the reasons that we change the order of our service on Sundays is to keep from becoming perfunctory where we just go through the motions, and it's not impactful. And a lot of times, because we're self-centered beings, we come away from praise evaluating it based on what it did for us. It's like human nature, unfortunately. But the thing I love about just this, these few words is that though we can enjoy it or not, it is not about us. It exists. Praise exists. We didn't think it up. It exists because God exists and God is so grand and, and holy and beautiful and mighty and powerful and good that he deserves praise around the clock. And he is he deserves it from his people. He deserves it from us. And what I like about that is that it removes the things that we're constantly fed in our culture, and that is well, how does it affect me or what does it do for me or what can I get out of it? And it puts it back. And those things are important. God wants us to enjoy that. But that's not primary. So the primary aspect of praise or the foundation of why people would even bother to engage in it, whether it's fun or a drudgery, is this stated fact that praise is due God. He is that good. He's just that good. So that praise should um, <clears throat> should emanate from his being. Now, as you know, and I, I try to say it often so you don't forget it, and that is we have described why we exist as a church, first of all, to exalt God, and secondly, to edify the saints, and then thirdly, to evangelize the lost. And so... Exalting God is important for us, and we try to give uh, ample time for us as worshipers to come, enjoy the Lord, but worship Him, sing our praise, tell Him words, offer gratitude in in our times, and it's it's intentional. You know, not all, and there's no perfect, I guess, no, amount of time that that uh, I guess. It, you know, that church could give so that their worshipers have ample time. But I'd like to think that we spend about half of our service in specifically in times of praise and worship in that way. So we have ample time to do that. The God is our maker. He is deserving of praise. So I have, um, you know, when it comes to singing, one of the things that I've noticed when I became a Christian and I was raised in a 
Catholic home, and we sang hymns and so forth, uh, but I was not a Christian then. But when I became a Christian, I noticed that one of the things that Christians almost always do is sing. I mean, every time a Christians get together, they sing. And sometimes, you know, I noticed it wasn't just at church, but it could be at Bible study or it could be at care group. And they're singing and singing and singing. It could be just a small group and Christians sing. Last, um, the last walk for life. They sang. They sang a praise song to God. And if I remember right, they didn't have a band or a worship leader available. So they played a song on the radio and we sang along with that. Sometimes, if I'm going to be honest, I wonder if we always have to sing every time we get together. So sometimes I'm thinking, is this too much? I mean, do we really have to do this? Especially if, you don't, if you're just going to sing with a, a tape or something like that. Is this too much? So, you know, I'm just thinking about this, being honest with you. <clears throat> and I think there's freedoms to sing and not to sing. Obviously, it's a good thing to sing praise and give thanks to God every, if we can every time we gather. But we don't have to every time we gather depending on the, you know, the numbers and what's the purpose of gathering. But I say all that to reveal my heart, but, but also to conclude with... This, that I have found that singing praise is only a burden to me no matter what the circumstances are. It's only a burden to me when I lose sight of why we sing in the first place. Because it will become or can become a burden to me when I make it about me. And I, and I lose sight of the fact that it's not about the band. It's not about how many people you have or how good their voices are. Those things are important. But ultimately, that's not what it's about. It's me having another opportunity and needed opportunity to give praise, to sing words that are due the God that has saved me. The God that loves me. The God that is so good to me, who treats me in a way that I do not deserve. So ultimately, we, we don't sing um, because we sound good, though I hope we do. And we should hopefully grow in that area. Uh, we, we don't sing praise because it makes us feel good, although certainly hope we do. We, we should take delight. That's our goal, to be delighted and take tremendous pleasure in having opportunities to praise God. But we sing because praise is due him. And that, that perspective just changes things. It's, kind of, it's almost like it turns things right back up where they belong. Like where, what, we, what our attitude and mindset should have been all along. We exist for his pleasure. And the flesh constantly wants to turn that around and say, uh, God, you exist for my pleasure. I want to tap into your powers and ask you to do all these things for me so I can build my kingdom. Now, we exist for him. And it's, it's an honor. And it's a privilege. And there are good reasons to praise God whenever, whatever opportunity we can. Not just about the, the talent. So, we, you know, this is a good 
practical scripture for us as a church. What's our mindset? What's our motive behind it as we weigh the scales? Why am I really here? Why am I willing to do this? What is my focus? Is it because God desires this for me and he deserves this for me? And I think sometimes we get the mindset that, you know, a better band or a better chorus makes God more deserving. God's deserving no matter how badly I play or sing. You see the difference there? Now, a great band and beautiful. We, we're so blessed to have the musical talent that we do in this body. And it, it, it is a form of ministry that God uses. But it doesn't affect the worthiness of God. Praise is always do him. So I think I'm, I'm driving that home to you to try to open our eyes, if you will, to the grandeur of God and why we do. Because we're going to have an opportunity to praise him and enjoy fellowship with him today in the Lord's Supper. The other thing, who is going to give this praise that's due him? Well, he says, you'll get it in Zion. We're your chosen people. You, you drew us near. And so because you did that, we're your people. We're going to be the ones. But then he expands it. And you get the gospel to the Gentiles, even in the Old Testament, in the book of Psalm, where it says people of all flesh are welcome to come. People from the, the very ends of the earth are welcome also to come and offer you the praise. Because just because you don't believe in God doesn't mean he isn't worthy of your praise. And so it's this it's a, a universal invitation for people all over the globe to engage in this pleasurable act by which they were created. All flesh shall come to you. And it's so the, the gospel, this invitation, it's universal. It's not to be confused with universal salvation in that, well, all people are saved no matter what they believe, no matter how they live, because I just can't imagine that it would turn out any other way. Now, this is the kind of universal salvation where the Apostle Paul says, uh, the God, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God to save, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. So it's universal in that it is open to all. But there's a problem here that pops up in the midst of this psalm. And that is, as the psalmist is thinking about how worthy God is, he realizes that there's iniquity. There's a hindrance from just coming into the temple. Something has to be dealt with first. There is something that keeps us away from God. And that is the iniquities here. Isaiah 59, uh, first few verses, puts it very well. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. So there's man's great dilemma. How do you find acceptance? How do you worship this God when you are aware of your sins that alienate you from him? And that problem is remedied in this psalm with verse 3. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. So right there in this mist of praise is a doctrine of atonement. 
And to atone means to cover. Here's how James Boyce puts it. Since the ark, if you're thinking about the temple and worship, since the ark held the two stone tablets of the law containing the Ten Commandments, which we have broken, the blood covered over those transgressions, shielding our sins from the gaze of the thrice holy God and pointing to the coming only sufficient sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross. His sacrifice not only covers our sins, but also removes them from us forever. That every time we gather and offer God praise, every time we pray and he hears us, it is because atonement has taken place. It's because he's not seeing us in that sense, in our filth, but because we've been covered in the blood of Christ. Everything that we offer him has been made acceptable, not on our merit, not because we work so hard, but on the merits of Christ. It's the beautiful doctrine of atonement. And we want to be aware of that every time we we offer praise that we can do what we do because a man died on the cross for us. Jesus, the Son of God. And I think it's also important to point out that the psalmist says, you made atonement. See, we didn't do it. We can't make atonement. We can't cover our own sins. It has to be done for us. So he says, you atone for our transgressions. You forgive. You provided the covering. And because of that, verse 4, we're just blessed. We are a blessed people. We are blessed worshipers. It is a blessing to come into your courts and dwell with you and receive this grace undeserved. Praise is due him. And then verses 5 through 8, we read about the God of salvation. He's mighty to save. He's a mighty God. By awesome deeds, you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation. The hope of all the ends of the earth and the farthest seas. The one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might. Who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of the waves, the tumult of the peoples. So that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. The God of all salvation. The psalmist is is admitting here the tremendous might and the power of God and all he does, how he sovereignly reigns and rules over even the mountains, who gets water, when the water comes, who gets the sun. Literally, God directs the drops of water that falls. There's a whole system there, of course, but the drops of water that fall through. So he directs them exactly where they need to go. And then, of course, they evaporate and go back up, and it's just the cycle begins again. He's that, he's that good. He's that particular about his creation. But what that does is tells us or at least reminds us of what we can't do. 
And, you know, I read this psalm, and as a father, I think to myself, because God's so powerful, he's the one that can save. One of, uh, one of our duties as dads, of course, is to protect, to protect our wife and our kids the best that we can. And when you have a family, you, you take that serious and you love your kids so much that you want to do anything within your power, within your power to protect them. And at first, you know, the kids stay close and so forth. But as they grow older, you realize that as a father or even as a mom, you can't be there for your kids. If you have more than one, you can't be two places in one time. You know, you just can't always be there for them. So something. So then what do you do to protect them? How can you protect them if you can't be there to protect them, say, from their own stupidity? Or from other people's stupidity or whatever it is it's, that's going to happen. And there comes a, a time, I think, for Christian, especially Christian men, where you have to trust in an omniscient God. The omnipotent God. I can't be there. You know, when my daughter went to another country, I'm like, man, I can't be there to help her navigate through the airports and all these kind of things. And it made me anxious. And I had to make that choice to realize, wait a minute, who is God and what is he capable of and how much does he love? And how can he save and how mighty is he? And so it's putting the power in the proper place and it's a trusting and it's humbling to know that though God gives us powers, we're not God. And he is. And so all the time he's, he's turning to God, there's an acknowledgement that he is mighty to save. And so we trust in God for our salvation and we trust in God for our preservation. And he's a worthy God. He alone is infinite and strong. God is mighty to save. The creation is in need of God's power to continue for the sun to come up and for the sun to go down. So he's a God of might. And something I want to say before moving on that is we think about how, how incredibly strong God is and how awesome his deeds are for us to speak about them and, and boast in God about them. One of the ways that God designs, uh, desires to manifest his power in the earth is through his sanctifying power in you. And so our tendency is to want to and pray and long for God to change circumstances out here to, for his renowned, you know, stop this storm or put this fire out or, or save this, this building or this crash or plane, all these external things. When God's plan is often, and he does both, but also often to change our hearts and sanctify our hearts so that we display the image of God and then the world sees more of who God is, what God can do, and what God is like. So the power in the New Testament church, well, in the church old and new, is the power to change a heart. Not just to change the flow of water to calm the seas, but the power to change a heart. And so sometimes that's what we need more than the external circumstances to be changed and for us to be delivered 
But rather than a, a raise in pay, perhaps what we need is a little raise in godliness. You know, or, or rather than, than a healed leg, maybe what I need more than that is a more grateful heart for what I, I can do. Or rather than deliverance from that pesty neighbor or enemy, maybe what I need more than that is grace and patience and understanding or, or contentment. And so there's these inner workings that God really can change our heart in these kind of ways. And it's a beautiful testimony of his power. So yes, he can calm the seas. He can quiet the nations. But our only hope is in God. If we're going to put our hope in leaders, if we're going to put our hope in man-made peace treaties, then we hope in vain. Christ is our king. And then lastly, and simply put, the God of plenty. I won't read verses 9 through 13 in full, but you get the idea here and how poetic it is. You visit the earth. It's like God was here. You see dew on the ground, God was here. You see the rain, God was here. You see the sunshine, the beach, the beautiful sand, the green waters, the flows, the abundance, the ridges, the showers. It's all a blessing that we get to enjoy. And all of this psalm is in the anticipation that the people of God are going to enjoy a harvest. And they get to thank him for it. Speaks of his grace, his power. He cares for people and he cares for land. He cares for the crops of all things. And in that day and age in Canaan, I don't know if you've been there or not, but uh, sometimes a rainstorm is a matter of life and death. It's a matter of whether you eat or you don't. A good crop. And it's still like that in places in the world. It's often barren. The, the psalmist is enthralled how it all comes together from start to finish. And God puts, say, food on our plate maybe three times a day. So praise is due him. He talks metaphorically about creation, shouting the praises of God. Jesus said, "If you, in essence, the rocks will, will cry out to me in praise. And the idea here, as we close is that God is so worthy that if the inanimate things had mouths, if they could sing, they would. And God created other creatures specifically for that purpose with lungs who can communicate and formulate wonderful lofty thoughts about him. And that is those that were created in his image, people, mankind. And we have the opportunity to give God praise. Creation can't. The point is, we can and we should. So let's be mindful as that uh, of this psalm and praising our worthy God as our worship team comes up and leads us this morning.